Hey, this is Jacob Haller. In my podcast, Tell Me About Your Song, I call up all kinds of songwriters, jazz, rock, folk, electronica, whatever, and all levels of experience from just starting out to established national acts, and I ask them to talk about a song they wrote for about 20 minutes. So if you're interested in hearing creative folks talk about what they do, then check it out at tellmeaboutyoursong.com. Thanks. Loading artists, audio inside. Loading artists, audio inside. Oh, it's Oddcast, it's Oddcast, it's Oddcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen by your easel, maybe you can grab a chair. Or even take it with you like you ain't got no care. Loading artists, audio inside. Loading artists, audio inside. So sit back and relax and grab your headphones too. Adjust your volume, it's Oddcast. Philip J. Mellon welcomes you. So sit back, oh yeah, it's Oddcast. Loading artists, audio inside. Loading artists, audio inside. During the, uh, us talking, I'm seeing that that shelf behind you that has all the white um, oh, mm-hmm. milk glass bases and everything. I'm sorry. Milk glass is what it's called. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I can't help but think of Mirandy. Yep. And I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, or <laughs> what we've been talking about, like as far as knowing and reality and everything else, it just you have a bit of it there. And then thinking about Mirandy, who, um, you know. What what is he presenting as far as like what's real, you know? And you know, um, I I very specifically thought of Mirandy when I started collecting milk glass. Um, I I I have a bunch of it. Um, I've only picked it up at thrift stores for a buck or two, maybe a yard sale. I think um, I might have a really high dollar precious piece that I paid five dollars for, but yeah. um, uh, definitely was thinking about Mirandy. I'm crazy about his work. Um, something that uh, means a lot to me in his work is. Um, how much it seemed that he was painting between the pieces. You know, they're the so objects, figurative. Yeah. And then that there's so much presence to, there's so much atmosphere in these strange yeah. little, almost monochromatic painting after painting of collections of vases and um, cake plates and, and bottles and, you know, um, they're so emotional to me, <laughs> those pieces yeah. of painting. So, Martina, let me welcome you to Hotcast. Thanks, Phil. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're welcome. My first question is, what feeds your work more? Would you say your other work, looking at art, life, or something other than those things? First of all, I have to tell you, it's hilarious that you gave me the option of other. <laughs> um, <laughs> life or other. <laughs> um, right. I, I, Of course, I, I guess I would say... 
um, life, first and foremost. Um, you know, uh, I suppose we can just say art is part of life, but I know what you're speaking of. Practically, um, we artists, you know, track each other's work and go to museums and seek out our artistic heritage and um, learn a great deal from that. And I definitely gather a lot of inspiration from um, art history and my contemporary artists and artist friends. Um, I sometimes, though, uh, am aware of needing to tune out um, and tune in. <laughs> um, so I might um, have to admit to being a little bit solipsistic. And I know um, I was a little concerned about using that word. Um, and I, I noticed that. What was the word again? I'm sorry. Solipsistic. Um, so, uh, you know, it has sort of negative connotations, I think, especially with a sort of self-involved hipster kind of generation. Um, so in that way, one definition is overly concerned with one's own desires, needs, or interests. Um, yeah. The definition I would like to ascribe to, that was a bit harsh. Um, <laughs> surely I am all that, but let me um, own up to um, a philosophical theory that your own existence is the only thing that is real or can be known and so relevant to what we were just chatting about before yeah. sort of officially starting here. Sometimes I feel like it's all I can do to cope with the chatter in my own mind. <laughs> so in other words, sometimes I do sort of tune out. In other words, I'm guilty of pulling up in the studio, sort of justifying uh, tuning out so I can sort out things yeah. a bit, right? But unfortunately then, you know, a bunch can pass me by, museum shows and, you know, oh. nice exhibitions come and go and I'm like, Whoa, wasn't even on my radar. So, yeah, um, yeah. so in other words, I sort of fluctuate between pulling up and sort of being internal and other times going out and gobbling up a bunch. But I would say in general, you know, I've used this sentence probably, it's a bit overused in my, the history of my artist statements, but that I'm responding to the cacophony of daily life. So in other words, I wouldn't privilege art as being more influential to my art over all the rest, right? Because all yeah. the rest is what's contributing to that art being made. So um, maybe I should just say other. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just to tease you. Nice. <laughs> my next question, does making work bring out the worst or the best in you? Well. <laughs> um, well, I think I'd be really difficult to live with if I weren't doing it. I mean, I know that from experience that when I've had times in my life where um, my, my, you know, my schedule, my physical space or mental space doesn't allow me to be um, working in the studio regularly, I just become, um, you know, a little more uptight, perhaps quite a bit more uptight. You know, it's harder to not sweat the small things, so to speak. Um, I think uh, working, you know, working in the studio is such a release and stimulation at once. And um, it's, you know, I, perhaps for all of us artists, um, well, perhaps everybody is conducting their lives in a manner that allows them to find, uh, live out a sort of self-help program, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, 
I, I also would say um, the way in which it brings out the worst is because I'm so deeply invested, and sometimes that's difficult, right, because now we have labeled ourselves as an artist and there are certain expectations and there's a whole identity um, that goes along with that. Um, you know, it's a sort of a social construct, and a lot of it's in our in our head, and we're something we're choosing to, you know, prescribe or subscribe to. Um, but, you know, the way in which we can be our own worst critic, um, our own worst uh, judge in every arena of life when it comes to something you're especially invested in, I, I can get really, you know, uh, hard on myself um, with regards right. to uh, my expectations and um, and also that um, instruction we give as teachers to the students, um, you know, and we had as students from our teachers to get outside of our comfort zone. You know, that is such a fertile area. Um, it's something I'm really trying to do ever more right now. And, uh, you know, the teacher in me knows this is really the appropriate thing to do and sort of, you know, cheering me on. But, you know, the, person in me is like oh this is so uncomfortable um so 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 also it's an uh it's an area of well just everything's intensified in equal measure to my investment so it can be um uh area of uh, pretty painful feelings but also some of the um greatest joy too yeah <laughs> Cool. In fact, you know, I often liken what's happening in the studio, this sort of, uh, this sort of engine buzzing kind of feeling. Um, it's something like a hamster wheel, and um, there are these thoughts turning around. And thankfully, I don't ever land on either extreme, but that they're just sort of buzzing around, um, uh, around and around and around um, these sort of streams of feeling. Um, sort of uh, privately brilliant and utterly humiliated, you know. Uh, yeah, simultaneously? Yes, no? yes, yes. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, this feeling like, oh, my God, I'm making this up. Oh, my God, <laughs> I made this up, you know. So, uh, That's good. Yeah, so, so to answer your question both, the best and the right. worst. <laughs> yeah. So you ready for another question? Yeah. Okay. Shoot. What do you spend mo the most time doing, looking, making, or thinking? Also, another really good question. Um, I I don't know, maybe um, equal parts, all three, but I especially um, appreciate that you um, bring up the idea of uh, looking and thinking as part of making. Um, yeah. You have a question coming up here about um, how long does it take to make a piece. I get that question um, a lot in uh, exhibition talks or what, and um, your question is worded a little differently about um, a, a working session, so we can elaborate on that. But I started saying in response to the question, how long does it take to make a piece, uh, that some pieces require a lot of think time, <laughs> yeah. and that's part of it, you know. So it's really difficult for me to 
to say how long does it take to make a piece. Um, uh, occasionally, I even have to turn a piece around and sort of we have to shut up and stop <laughs> the discussion for a bit. And uh, I, I, I like that you use the term cure, that sometimes a piece has to cure for a while and you come back to it. Um, uh, sometimes I think I might, uh, a piece might get ahead of my understanding of it. Um, yeah. Here we go again, crediting the work with having this sort of power over us or this, or I should say, this knowledge ahead of us, or, but it, it, it does happen. Um, uh, a joke among friends is that, you know, this piece is from the future. <laughs> oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I forget which artist it was. I want to say um, Monet, but um, I remember hearing in art history that famously in his studio there was sort of a path worn in the floor oh, yeah. from stepping back and looking at the piece. Um, I have a rocking chair I frequently will sit in and um, sort of just <laughs> rock along with the painting for a while. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, e- equal parts, all three in general. Right. Yeah. And it's hard to put, um, yeah, I'm sure it changes so much, like how long that actually is for each part or... Yes, yes, you know what? Uh, you also have a question about scale coming up here on the page. Um, sometimes the smaller pieces take a lot longer because there's so much uh, at stake with every mark um, where a large piece I might have to get back from a lot because up close I'm almost losing my place and I have to get back and take in the whole context. Um, a smaller piece... Uh, I, I I might have to put it aside more frequently and for longer than you might think. You can imagine again my work bears very little reworking, and um, you know I think as soon as you make a mark on a page, game on. You know your problem solving, and when you have you know uh, ten square feet to solve that problem, um, there's a lot of directions you can explore. But when you have um, you know, small amount of space, say, yeah. you know, uh, I've been working on 16 by 20 lately. That still feels pretty big, but even um, a little smaller than that, I think it's really difficult, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You mentioned a little bit about scale, but I was wondering how you feel further, if it, how it affects the work, and do you work in varying sizes? I do work in varying sizes. In fact, I had a review once that, pointed that out that um, I, I felt especially uh, um, grateful that the reviewer uh, remarked that I was um, accomplishing a strong composition at both a very large scale and very small scale. In fact, it was a show that included a 21-foot-long painting. That's the largest I've ever worked. And um, then there was a painting that I think was about... um, uh, I think it's about 5 by 10 inches, so, you know, (laughs) really quite a bit smaller. Um, So, as I just said, the smaller work is um, maybe it's counterintuitive, but quite a bit more difficult, I think. Um, 
I really appreciate how experiential the larger work can be, you know, just that it uh, can fill our peripheral vision, our whole field of vision. It feels, um, you know, almost atmospheric. I, I enjoy that. I enjoy being in that atmosphere as a maker, you know, I enjoy entering the painting, so to speak, um, when it's a large-scale piece. I, I, I'm not sure I have this attribution accurate, but I, I, I want to say, maybe you'll know this, um, was it Rothko who for a while uh, was hopeful that folks would view his work up close, like quite close? Um, the anecdote I remember um, from way back as an undergraduate in art history, it's real fuzzy, but um, I think it was Rosso, but that he uh, requested that the, that the gallery install his work so that there was a wall behind the viewer, forcing the viewer to be quite close, like three to four feet or something dramatically yeah. close right. to the piece. Um, it stands to reason that it might be Rosco because his work... So yeah, it, it almost demands that makes sense. Right, <laughs> wonderfully atmospheric and this color field and um, filling your peripheral vision. Um, but so so yes, in that way, I, I really love what happens on a large scale. I, I yeah. love the journey of that um, length of time to problem solve during the creation of a large scale piece. But you know, the smaller works serve as wonderful little um i want to call it like a little ditty you know like a little song or a little poem or a little you know prayer or yeah just a note you know yeah, um, yeah. and i think they have a special power um occasionally a really successful piece can be just so sublimely succinct right where i tend to ramble so the larger scale pieces really appeal to me but Every once in a while, I think I accomplish um, a, a, a level of real succinct communication on a small scale. So yeah, I feel like um, some of your smaller works, you know, whether it works on paper or um, they almost seem like, uh, and this just popped in my head, they almost seem like objects to me more so than, say, the larger works, which um, I don't know. Like there's a lot more air in some of the larger works. Okay. Maybe the newer ones more so. Yeah. Yeah. But like um Yeah, the Marx sketch number four for one you know, it's yeah. very I'm not sure if it's finished. Yeah, it is. Um it's uh it's very much um sort of pulling apart in accordion like kind of quality to the bands and stacks of marks. Um so yeah. yes, a lot of air is coming in. I like the way you put that. I think it also is easy to read it that way because uh, it's one color on white paper. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, I I think it even just the color itself being blue that there is a lot of air and breath to it. Um, yeah. The mark is changing scale. There's a tiny bit more gesture coming in. Um, you know, I've been thinking about those pieces. I've been calling them posters because that sort of yeah. I want to keep a kind of a lighthearted uh, playground kind of quality, a laboratory kind of quality in in this investigation right now. I had this uh, I thought when I looked at Blue Sketch Number Four was it um, now I, I 
the, the certain way that I looked at it, say at that one moment, I thought of a floating whale. <laughs> yeah, you know, so. I got a couple comments. Um, I've just been, you know, photographing them with my phone and posting them on Facebook or Instagram a little bit. And um, I have had a lot of comments about aquatic life or some of the yeah. fish skeleton. Um, oh, cool. You know, I do think they have a sort of skeletal structural kind of quality. Yeah. And um, while color is central to my inspiration, I've come to realize rhythm is really central to the content of the finished work. And paring down to one color for a while looking at the texture is allowing me to really think more about new possibilities regarding rhythm. Right. Yeah. Uh, interesting you should say rhythm. Maybe I should say this now, but do you know the band The CN Cake? I do. Yeah. Um, uh, through looking at your work, it just it brought them to mind. You know, I saw them perform ages ago. They were a favorite band of a good friend of mine. I'm afraid they've fallen off my radar, so I'll have to go back and listen to them. Thanks for thanks for the reference. Oh no, that's great. No, I thought of it, and there's a specific song too. Uh, one of them more so on the the album We, which I believe came out in like 2000, so that was a long time ago. But oh, I saw uh, them. They sort of. I'm sorry. I saw them in the 90s, I think. Oh wow! Is that, cool. Yeah, is that possible? Were they in Chicago then? Really, uh, that's possible. Yeah, I'm really bad with chronology, but yeah, I think I think that was it. Anyway, go on. That which album? Oh no, well, just the one song. It's called "The Leaf." That uh, it kind of starts off and it just sounds like bubbles, like in the in the ocean or something, you know. That's so, so I've nice. been listening to them for the past couple of days. So the song is called "Leaf." The leaf. The leaf. Yeah. Wow. It's on the album. It's on the Wii album. Uh, um, O-U-I. Oh, thanks for showing <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so I guess it's, uh, you know, French. That's nice. First of all, wait, this is so word trippy right now because I was going to ask you, is it we like as in you and I or we as in like going over a bump in the road? Um, but oh. no, it's another we all together and it means yes, that's so sweet. Um, and the leaf. I like that. You know, suspension is a word I would relate to my work and, um, uh, 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 we can talk more about what that means to the work conceptually and um, formally, but uh, whenever I imagine flying, yeah. you know, the sensation of flying or the sensation of floating, it's always like a leaf. I mean, I wouldn't take off like Superman. I would fall back. Yeah. It's always been the case that this idea of, you know, say, I mean, I, I assume we all have some imagination of what it would be like if I could fly. Well, yeah. for me, it's always I've always had that idea it would be like a leaf floating. I would be like, oh, cool, yeah, that. Right? And bubble, yeah, that sounds um, a little more romantic or just sort of like fantastical in a way, <laughs> rather than some kind of power, you know. So all these words you're describing, um, a, 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 an album and a, a song title, and then the sounds you just mentioned that open the song they're all resonating in a really um trippy way for me right now too i'm not synesthetic but i think there for me there's very much a um auditory aspect to my painting process and um i don't mean a bubble sound in a giggly kind of babbling brook kind of way but almost more of a bubbling over right yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Or rising up in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. 
And then, you know, well, there you go with flying and what have you. Yeah. <laughs> sort of an overflowing kind of quality. Yeah. Well, I can um, add to it that um, I I definitely don't um, hold myself to any obligation to finish a piece in one session. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, that's never been important to me. Um, uh, and I actually value coming back to a piece um, and seeing it anew or seeing it fresher. You know, um, I... In that way, I also enjoy studio visits where for a brief moment, I think that you can borrow someone else's objectivity and see the work fresh and new for a moment. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, I also have, will always have uh, more than one piece going, usually most yeah. pieces. That's really helpful because, in fact, um, sometimes, y- you know, um, you need to take a break or you're going to kind of force it. Um, and oftentimes things will occur to me in one piece that really needs to be developed or investigated elsewhere and to have that opportunity to sort of step over to another stage, so to speak, and work something out is really, um, helpful and, 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 and necessary to prevent, (laughs) uh, trying to fit it all in one and, you know, likely overworking something. Do you make with intention or is it possible to know what your work is about? And is there a read or and whose job is it, you or the viewer, to do so? Well, um, absolutely I make with intention. In fact, I don't think anyone can make anything without intention. You know, um, I think as soon as that first mark is made, we're problem solving, you know. So there's, um, I think even doodling has intentionality. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yes, I think it's possible to know what the work is about, but I also would maintain it's uh, not possible to entirely know what it's about. Yeah. Very much wedded to that ineffable um, aspect to some of the most successful work, and that's that's part of it, right? I had this really um, great philosophy course in graduate school on metaphors. Isn't that great? <laughs> the oh, whole yeah. course on metaphors. Um, uh, much of it is really still very um, memorable to me, but um, one thing that occurs to me frequently is this notion that uh, metaphors are the most like art in our language, right? And um, art in our life is the most like our love relationships. Just the the simplest way to um, explain that is we we all know that you can explain a lot about why you love somebody or love a piece of art, but you can't entirely explain it, right? You can't adequately sum it up. Yeah, yeah. So there's... um, going to be, when it's working at its best, there's going to be something that's not entirely uh, uh, available to us, even if we could articulate it. But, you know, I think metaphors operate where we can't fully articulate. Yeah. um, (laughs) So, yes, I, 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 
I do think it's possible to know what it's about um, uh, to some extent, and, and you know, I do think it's possible to start to articulate how a piece is operating. Um, I don't think it's the artist's job, because if I could explain it, it would be probably pretty boring to look at, right? I mean, if I could yeah, explain I guess, it, I probably wouldn't have to make it. Right, exactly. I agree with that. I think, it, you know, if you make the painting and you, you explain it, you're it's it's redundant. Or, yeah. Or maybe not redundant, because, I mean, how can the words be the same as the image? But just you've already said it in the painting in some way. I guess, you know. Although I do think, um, I do value artist statements. I, I think it's important, um, especially with uh, our media-saturated world, I think it's important for artists to be able to introduce where they're coming from. I yeah. I don't think um, you know uh, I I don't think it's our job to answer so much as to ask right yeah. ask questions. Uh, That's great. But uh, the the artist statement is maybe just an introduction to what you know. What motivates the work? How, as an artist, you legitimize what it is you have to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I also, um, I, I say this sort of tongue in cheek, but I, I don't know. Maybe I absolutely, <laughs> maybe I, maybe it's not so tongue in cheek. Um, but I will tell people that I think um, my titles maybe tell you everything you need to know about the work. Oh wow. Maybe it's more accurate to say my titles tell you everything you need to know about me. <laughs> Um, and I don't mean uh, that one title entirely sums up one piece, but say over time, I feel I feel by and large satisfied with my titles. Occasionally, one misses the mark, but yeah. I feel like if someone were really tracking it, yeah. it's all in the titles already. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if, if we must have the words, right? <laughs> Yeah, and then that becomes the, um, in, in as, the book. As far as words go, I should say. <laughs> words about the work. So, uh, speaking of words, I like this. Uh, this is like, uh, could be a fun question. Uh, can you use three to five words to describe your work? Yeah, okay. So, I, I had a chance to think about this ahead of time. Um, this is in no particular order, but I admit optimism was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, yeah. People frequently say happy, and I want to resist that as a descriptor of my work, and I'd sooner say optimism or optimistic. Um, unabashed. Oh, yeah. Admittedly, at first I had exuberant, but I want to say unabashed is maybe a little more specific. Um, exuberant maybe also relates to optimism. Uh, rhythm, suspension, and um, I have here audible. I want to say musical, but I also mean that with all due modesty. I think musicality might sound like a, I'm flattering myself, but you know, no, I, to say it's musical might be very subjective. But, um, you know, I'm very much noticing point and counterpoint and visual rhyming and a certain syncopation yeah. um, in the compositions as they develop. Uh, as I said, I'm not clinically synesthetic, but I very almost hear it. You know, I almost hear the pieces as they develop. Yeah, there's. Um, <laughs> I feel a little silly saying this, but sometimes it just pops into my mind. Like if you take, you know, if you have yet to uh, say you got the water boiling on the stove, uh -huh. 
and you just you're breaking the spaghetti and then you drop it in the water and that that's like visually uh, you know similar to some of your paintings. Here we go with bubbles again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, well, you know, I appreciate what you're saying. Now, I don't I don't want to call it at all random, but there's a definite um, definitely spontaneity is an aspect that um, is important um, for me to see in the work. You know. Um, yeah. Whereas something like the spaghetti or pickup sticks or something like that, while yeah, while the linear imagery I see has a has resonance um, with with the work, uh, I would say that um, instead of the randomness of how things might fall, um, that you know I'm I'm very much mediating the work, um, but in such a direct manner that yeah. spontaneity is 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 an aspect that's important to me. Um, again, we, you know, related to that is that this is a, that these are very much built one stroke at a time and that I, yeah. It is like I you're kind of, there's uh, no reworking it. You know, there's no reworking it. It's, yeah. So it's like, it's almost like you have a, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't <laughs> talk about it. I'm just, all these things are popping into my head. But, uh, no, that's okay. The, that's uh, good. It's like you're laying bricks. Uh, you have this, <laughs> like, you, you have a plan, but you're, you're not aware of it. You know, like, you, I mean, it's, it makes, it's very sen- sensible or sensical, if, if I'm just making up words here, but the, um, like you have, like you have your materials already somehow, and you're, and you're putting them together, especially with, I, I believe it's the one the, the man operates that tilt the world has, oh, was in love with Rose. Yeah, you know, um, I had a studio assistant who's become just, you know, very, very dear to me. Um, uh, she was in a co-op, cooperative education program at the School of Art Institute and worked in my studio for a semester and then stayed on the following summer. And um, she would, uh, you know, we would socialize um, every time she was in the studio, just, you know, catching up on her weekend or whatever. And um she would sometimes say these things in this really beautiful syntax, and I just would have to stop and write it down immediately. But she told yeah, me yeah. about going to a street fair over the weekend, and um, the way the story started was that the man operating the tilt world was in love with Rose. Rose was one of her friends who was with her, and uh. she would say these things, and they would be so visual to me. Well, frequently yeah. uh, my titles come from things I have heard in conversation that have been so powerfully visual that yeah. they're, they provoke <laughs> the image. image. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, Heather Kingsbury, she's wonderful, but she that credit goes to her for... I'm sorry, what was her name? Heather Kingsbury. Oh, okay. Yeah, Thanks. so she, she, uh, she provoked that painting with the story of her weekend going to a street fair here in Chicago. Oh, I feel like it's it's somewhat um like it creates this this like the skeletal sort of feeling to it. Like it it's it's there to protect some. Like it has more form. Like all the um the strokes or or you know dashes they they're creating something that's specific in a way. And I feel like I can't tell whether it's the form coming together or coming apart. That's also um that's also really appealing to me. I feel that way about um life. Right, <laughs> going well or going poorly, is everything going down yeah. the tubes, or is it the best time ever to be alive? Um, 
Yeah. Th that's something I really love about the little video you made um, of the different stages of progress for the the big uh, blue and orange sketch. The way right. you put that together, I guess you put the images together in order and then went backwards, right? Cause it's, yeah, I think I went forward, backwards, and then forward again. Yes, it seems to. Something like that, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Right, it seems to create before our eyes and then undo itself and then come back yeah. together. I love that. I love oh, cool. That. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, so you can imagine um, uh, 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 the idea of the tilt-a-whirl, right? Um, yeah. That already is just powerfully so visual, just even the name, of course, everything is all there. Um, yeah. And this idea that the man operating it was in love with Rose, this idea of the Rose, right? <laughs> everything, oh, okay, right? yeah, boom. Uh, or, it was yeah. just, all of it was just opening up, this image was um, conjured by, it's all there in the title, <laughs> right? So which deceased artist would you have liked to speak spoken with? Okay, I sort of just um, off the top of my head this little list. Um, Matisse Mondrian and um, Philip Gustin, um, what interests me about these three guys and no doubt other folks have done something similar, but the dramatic shifts in their work, you know, yeah. for Matisse and Mondrian, their journey toward abstraction and then okay. Philip Gustin's, you know, 180 going to, yeah. I guess we won't, won't call it representational, but you know, from some, his abstraction that was so atmospheric to his figurative work. Um, yeah. I, I, his seems of course a lot more politically motivated um, and, and also publicly controversial. I don't know what it was like for, uh, perhaps I have the impression that for Matisse in particular, it was sort of a slow, actually for both Matisse and Mondrian, you know, at least as it would appear as you look at their images. Have you ever seen um, Mondrian's trees? Um, um, I don't have an image in my head for that. Okay, but. well, uh, um, look this up because if you're a fan of um, Mirandi, I think you yeah. really dig these trees. Um, that they, they predate his geometric abstraction, but like Mirandi's vases, he seemed to be painting between the branches more than the branches yeah, themselves. Yeah, that's great. And there's just um, such a vivid kind of cutout quality to the air. Um, yeah. You know, you really feel the atmosphere, the air being displaced by the form. There's a kind of wonderful pressure in this work. Well, it becomes... You can, um, he's an easy guy to use to illustrate abstraction in a basic introduction to visual arts course because he continued to paint the image of the tree, but it became more and more geometric. Yeah. Until then, he's breaking it down to rhythm and his penultimate Broadway boogie woogie seems really, yeah, really yeah. far from, you know, this tree that um, was so uh, wrought with emotion and majestic and figurative and wonderful. There's, I think there's two of them at the Art Institute. Um, anyway, um, Matisse is uh, another great one to look at for his steps toward abstraction. Um, 
there's you can find examples of similar interiors painted uh, early on um, in a very impressionistic manner, and then later in the flat, vivid, fauvism kind of, yeah. you know, Red Studio as an example. And then I know there's a interior at a dining table uh, that I think is only a decade earlier. And what yeah. what what went through his mind? in that decade, right? You know, um, uh, I think it's so necessary to be brave. Um, I used to say that to my students, and I think early on maybe they thought that was sort of a sensational kind of cowboy talk thing to say. But um, I time and again hear from students, I get it. I, I, I feel the requirement to be brave and it's difficult you know even yeah. if it's just like looking at that blank piece of paper and yeah. you know um but to make that kind of journey in your work so okay so those three guys for that reason Ava Hess and Cy Twombly because I find their um sculpture to be so damn poetic and talk about the ineffable right oh it's um it's, I, yeah, it just very nearly leaves me speechless, but I would really love to talk to them about their relationship to the work. Yeah. Um, Kandinsky, of course, because of, um, do you know he, he is considered to have been synesthetic. I, 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 I know art historians commonly believe he was, and I don't know if it was otherwise documented. Yeah. He spoke, um, often about, um, hearing or audible aspects to his creative decision making. Um uh oh wow. Yeah. Um I know um I think it's um concerning spirituality in art or I think it's in you know he's he, he there's two little volumes that are just so rich, but I think it's in that book that um he ascribes a different instrument in the orchestra or different section of the orchestra to um to 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 the color spectrum. All I remember yeah. is I, I believe he I believe he associated um, yellow with the percussion section. Oh really? <laughs> I think I have that right. I'm not. I, yeah, you might. You have to. You have to check that. But um, uh, it also this also might come from his book on point line and plane. They're, they're thin little volumes and really rich and I just he's very. Uh, he speaks with a lot of authority, but also a great deal of poetry. Uh, oh, cool. And also Agnes Martin, about everything. She, I was, oh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I bet she was a good cook. Yeah, you think so? Yeah. I don't know, something about her face. Yeah. Yeah. Martina Neerling talks further on the work of Agnes Martin. One of her last bodies of work, um, the paintings about love, I saw a show in New York, and uh, I can't remember if this was just after 9-11. I think it was, um, but it happened that she, this was the late 90s and early 2000s, I think, is uh, when she was making these paintings, but um, they were very subtle pastel stripes, sort of cream and pastel yellow and pinks, um, uh, not multiple colors in each canvas, but um, overall just very subtle sort of sunset colors. 
Um, and each painting was titled with a different quality of love. Um, for example, one is unrequited love, long distance love, uh, oh, yeah. uh, parental love, romantic love. And, um, if, if you, uh, if you enjoy Agnes Martin's work or at least appreciate her convictions, when you look at these paintings and as you read the titles, they absolutely spot on illustrate what she's saying, what, what, yeah. how they're titled, right? When you look okay. at parental love and over here's long distance love, it's, yep, that's exactly it. it. <laughs> yeah. It's so amazing that, um, she could, she, how she developed such a spare language and so, so, so precise. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, this is a really um, interesting area of work. Um, you know, uh, earlier we talked a little bit about Mirandi. Something I enjoy about his work is I think if, maybe if you see just one image or two, um, you're not as impacted. But when you see the breadth of this investigation of yeah. so many still lifes of what seems like a very innocuous, even dull subject, and really yeah. monochromatic colors. The conviction he had for this imagery yeah. is, is very commanding. I think yeah, so, um, you've got to appreciate that even if it doesn't do it for you in the images. Yeah. I mean, just, wow. I mean, they're, they're, they're just beautiful constructions of, uh, you know, families and, uh, you know, figures of, of objects, you know, just this sort of crowds or, you know, crowds small and large, you know, in, yeah. in these still eyes. Like it's just, uh. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I noticed there's one more question on here that you haven't asked. Um, and, oh, really? Um, because I have another lame answer where I'm only half sure I know what I'm talking about, I have to okay. insist that I answer this. Um, it's, do you have an artist quote you would like to share? <laughs> you know what? Um, I, I guess earlier we talked about one quote, but um, I tried really hard to confirm that this was something Frank Stella said, and maybe you will know whether or not uh, he's the right artist to attribute this to. But it's <laughs> something like this. Um, I believe he said, I wish um, – I wish the work looked as great as the paint does in the can. And um, that's always meant a lot to me because the physicality of the material is so seductive to me. And yeah, um, yeah. Uh, color being so central to my inspiration, you can imagine I, um, I, I love the material. You know, uh, yeah. Um, well, I feel like it shows. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this sounds a little nuts, so right? But I'm, I think any of us who are passionate about what we do, there's some aspect of wanting to eat it, right? So I've never eaten my paint, but oh my gosh. Oh, you know what's funny? It's so it looks so delicious. <laughs> I was I was waiting for the perfect time to say this, and I oh, interesting. I used the word in the, but anyway, um, I. I wasn't gonna say it because it was kind of random and out of, out of. But since you said something about eating it, two of the words that popped into my head about your work was perfect candy. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, just I, I just titled the piece "Mud Candy." Um, oh, cool. That, that felt very appropriate to this piece. Um, 
Yeah, but you know, um, I think also uh, uh, the heavy body acrylics, or of course, oil paint has this elemental quality that seems like mud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and definitely uh, the colors are very candy, right? Um, I used to be told um, by the gallery I was with for many years here in Chicago that more than any other artist's work in the gallery, um, they had to uh, remind folks not to touch mine. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very high praise. <laughs> yeah, well, it's inviting that way. Yeah. You know, you think, wow, I mean, there's so much texture there, and, like, it's creating shadows. I mean, how could you not want to? <laughs> you yeah. <know>? yeah. <laughs> also, um, I um, I have in the past been very devoted to uh, using mediums that result in a shiny finish. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about mediums. Yeah, yeah, I like I like for the paint to look wet. That's part of, you know, part of the the, the uh, uh, aspect of spontaneity. I want to, you know, emphasize. Yeah. That 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 they might just run right off the canvas. <laughs> Next, Martina Nerling talks about the marks and some brushstrokes found in her paintings. I have before described the length of the brush stroke as something um, that relates to sort of a, a quick finger stroke, um, you know, almost like I could be writing in the air, um, taking notes. Um, I, I don't have specific sounds in mind as to, you know, what they, what kind of noise they make, but, you know, for the sake of talking about making almost tick-tock kind of notes, right? And um, the length is very much related to how much I can load up the paintbrush and draw out a line before it starts to break up. You know, it's about the length I can make a very saturated, gooey mark. Um, and the brush size itself also um, feels very appropriately an extension of my fingers. So yeah. I have described it that way and maybe um, someone heard that somewhere and misinterpreted it and thought I'm painting these with my fingers brush strokes. Um, and as I said, I, <laughs> it's not necessarily an insulting notion. It's just not accurate. <laughs> um, right, right. Lately with the uh, larger works on paper, this for poster explorations I'm doing, um, I, I'm starting to vary the, the, the brush and um, also starting to play with the idea of letting the brushstroke break up. Uh, oh wow! Uh, we'll see. We'll see how far it goes. I, you know, what I'm calling um, variations may be only subtle in some folks' eyes, but you know, um, taking steps. <laughs> well, there's definitely more. I think there's more to the story than than appears right away. Like if you dig through your website. And you go year by year, you know, I mean, I say, oh, I can pick this out as, you know, a work by you, but there, you know, you look a little deeper, there's a lot of layers there, and there's some different techniques behind some of those layers, and it's just amazing, like, how much, like, possibility you found within the, you know, the, say, the, the, the finger strokes and what have you, what, you, what you're working with. You know, um, I, I, I appreciate the time you spent looking, and I appreciate um, what you got out of it. Um, I do think there's, that's true of all of us, I'm sure, that there's more than meets the eye. 
there's more there yeah. than you might see at a glance. Um, once I was introduced by a friend of a friend as the happiest person he knows, and that immediately made me so mad. <laughs> I, of course, um, it was a formal situation. I was polite and everything, but boy, did that stick in my head. And you know, um, of course, happy is one of those at a glance kind of words. Um, it seems yeah. a little vapid. And, um, I often hear my work is happy and I'd rather insist that it's optimistic. Um, I think instead of being the happiest person you know, I might be the hardest working optimist you know. Um, I think I am hardwired for optimism. And you can imagine um, the world gives a lot of pushback to an optimist. You know, if... if Do you get tested? Well, I can imagine if you're a pessimist, you open the paper, turn on the news, and you feel some satisfaction in being right that it's all crap. Um, yeah. Not that I think it's all crap, but there's certainly a lot of... Uh, horror and brutality in the world and it's difficult to um, some days to find you know something redeeming upon which to build um, yeah. and I think if you're hardwired to uh, for optimism and need need that to move forward it can like it, it, it can be a lot of work <laughs> to um, to be you, to be me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like uh, yeah. Well, it's hard work, you know. I think uh, you know, painting is hard work too, and I think there's more more to the story. Like I think I just you know said something similar that I find that maybe maybe the most like the quote unquote happiest thing in your painting is the color, mm -hmm. but the interaction of everything else, you know, it's it could be where the chaos lies, you know? Yeah, you know, uh, I I sent an image to you of Jim Hodge's uh, work, a piece of his yeah, uh, yeah. called Into Life, and um, I especially love that installation of it because the piece looks to be um, laid out on a sidewalk, and it looks actually like the old-fashioned um, slate sidewalks. Um, some of those are around my graduate school campus at uh, University of Chicago, um, they they look full of history, many many footsteps over these slabs of slate. Um, so this this image I sent you, um, when I found it, it was described as a variation of this piece into life dated from 2001. I've never seen it in person. I've seen images of it installed in a more formal sort of on a sculptural platform. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, in 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 a gallery, but anyway, um, I, I think it's especially uh, full of meaning for me as it appears to be on the sidewalk there, and um, so it's a, it looks like a pink button-down long sleeve Oxford-style shirt with these flowers sort of bleeding out of it um, at the neck and at the arms and, and at the bottom of the shirt. I, um, you know, I think another word I would use to describe my work is, um, crush, but every variation of it, like sort of crushed, crushed, <laughs> um, yeah. crush as in crushing, <laughs> like crushing on something. Um, I find the world crushing. <laughs> I think if you're paying attention, it's always almost too much, you know, and, um, that piece conveys 
such beauty and horror at once. Yeah. So I, I hope my paintings don't only read as happy. <laughs> um, and I don't want to be on a soapbox and insist they're full of horror either. But, you know, that's part of um, the necessity I feel to make them is coping with the what I've described in an artist statement in the past is the relentless crashing, excuse me, relentless clashing of the beauty and horror, the at-onceness, the simultaneity of, of, of all that we can't unknow and every year a little more. This has been Oddcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Thanks for listening. And keep the dialogue going. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you this. Define abstract art. Oh, come on. Okay, here's a better one. What does this painting mean? I'm getting nowhere with this. Forget it. Hotcast Home is A-H-T-C-A-S-T dot com. Thanks again.